This week, is tighter blood pressure control better? We discuss two studies, including the high-profile SPRINT trial. Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I am super excited, not only because we are presenting the much-hyped sprint trial that everyone is talking about, but also because I'm welcoming a brand new guest. Uh, With me today is Mike Freilich. Mike is the chief medical resident at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and all-around savant. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good, Amal. How are you doing? Good. Good. So, uh, Mike is... uh, often insightful and witty, and there is no one I would rather follow on Twitter than Mike. So let me make a little plug for you to follow Mike at at Freilich Mike, which is spelled at F-R-A-L-I-C-K Mike. And while you're at it, you can follow us at Rounds Table. And also, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you have not yet rated us on iTunes, please, please, please give us a rating right now. It helps us tremendously uh, get the word out about this podcast. So thanks very much. So before we dive into our uh, clinical topics today, just to keep you in suspense for a little bit longer, we're happy to bring you another one of our clinical summary segments by our very own Jennifer Peng. This week, all about how to appropriately investigate patients for suspected pulmonary embolism. This week's clinical encounter will highlight the evaluation of adults with suspected pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism, also known as PE, is difficult to diagnose even though it's quite common. Its difficulty lies in that the signs, symptoms, and risk factors with which it's associated can be nonspecific. There is no individual risk factor, patient symptom, or clinical sign that enables a definitive diagnosis or the exclusion of PE. The American College of Physicians has published a new report that presents an evidence-based strategy for the diagnosis of PE. These guidelines were created because retrospective data has shown a large portion of patients with suspected acute PE receiving care that was contrary to evidence-based guidelines. In particular, CT has become the go-to imaging modality used for diagnosing PE. However, there is no evidence to suggest that increased CT use has led to improved patient outcomes. It is essential that patients with suspected PE be risk stratified to determine those with low, intermediate, and high pretest probability, as this will determine the appropriate diagnostic strategies. The pretest probability can be estimated using the Wells criteria, which will give patients a Wells score depending on the number of criteria that they meet. For patients with low pretest probability of PE, the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria, also known as the PERC, P-E-R-C, should be applied. The PERC is a recently designed decision tool to help clinicians identify very low-risk patients. Patients that meet all eight PERC criteria have, the, have a pretest probability of less than 1%, and therefore no tests should be pursued. So patients with a low pretest probability who do not meet all the eight PERC criteria should be given a plasma D-dimer test. The D-dimer test is highly sensitive, and if it's negative, no further testing is necessary. Patients with an elevated age-adjusted D-dimer level should have further imaging studies, and it is important for patients over 50 years old that age-adjusted D-dimer thresholds be used. 
for patients suspected to be at an intermediate risk for PE, D-dimer testing is warranted. Again, only elevated plasma D-dimer levels should prompt imaging. Clinicians should not use imaging studies as the initial test in patients who have low or intermediate pretest probability of PE. For patients with a high pretest probability, imaging should be performed without the need for a D-dimer assay. Computed tomographic pulmonary angiography, CTPA, is the preferred method when available and there is no contraindication to contrast dye. If CTPA cannot be used, ventilation perfusion lung scanning should be the alternative. We hope that this summary of evidence-based medicine was helpful. If you would like to read the paper, you can find the link to the article in the episode description on Healthy Debate. As always, you can tweet to us at Roundstable to tell us what you thought of this installment of Clinical Encounters with the hashtag Clinical Encounters, and I will catch you next time. Okay, so Mike, finally, the, the day is finally here. We hyped this last week in the podcast. We're going to talk about blood pressure, a whole episode. Sounds good. Okay. So the first article we're going to talk about is a meta-analysis that was published in The Lancet uh, looking at this very question of intensive blood pressure lowering versus a more relaxed or looser strategy of blood pressure lowering, which is currently the standard practice, which is sort of the more loose targets. Before we dive in, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we know about this topic right now? What do we know about blood pressure control and sort of tight versus more uh, loose strategies? Sure. So um, we know that um, you know targeting lower blood pressures reduces cardiovascular morbidity, uh, mortality, but exact, exactly where that target lies is unclear. And some observational studies, which have their obvious limitations, have actually shown progressive increase in cardiovascular risk with a systolic blood pressure greater than 115 systolic. So it begs the question, what is the ideal target? Uh, and that's really unknown at this point in time. And so that's exactly the sort of question we're getting at. In fact, in 2007, there was an expert panel of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute that, you know, all the big wigs, the big hypertension minds sat down together and thought, what is the single most important question about hypertension management? And this was the very question, which is, what is the target? So this is exactly what we're talking about here today. Exactly. So, Mike, I want to talk about a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in The Lancet about the effects of intensive blood pressure lowering on cardiovascular and renal outcomes. And this meta-analysis and systematic review showed that intensive blood pressure lowering was associated with improved cardiovascular outcomes in patients with hypertension. So Amol, in terms of the studies that were included, can you go through that? Yeah, so uh, these authors included randomized control trials that had at least six months of follow-up, and the studies had to randomly assign patients to intensive versus less intensive blood pressure control. They were very broad otherwise in their inclusion criteria, and they permitted basically any type of patient, including patients with diabetes or chronic kidney disease. And what were the main findings that came out of that meta-analysis? Yeah, so they identified 19 trials, which included 45,000 patients. And five of these studies were uh, about diabetic patients. And six of these studies were exclusively about chronic kidney disease patients. Overall, these studies followed patients for a mean follow-up of 3.8 years. And what they found was that in the more intensive blood pressure control strategy, the mean blood pressure overall was 133 over 76. 
And in the less intensive blood pressure strategy, the mean blood pressure was 140 over 80. So we're talking about a difference in systolic blood pressure of seven millimeters of mercury between the intensive and the less intensive groups. I guess the obvious concern is about what's a trade-off. So what were some of the adverse events uh, and what did that data look like? Yeah, so exactly like you said, what's the trade-off, what's the benefit? So why don't we start with the benefits? So the benefits they found were in major cardiovascular events. So this was a composite outcome of all cardiovascular events. The baseline rate of all cardiovascular events in these studies was about 5 to 6%. And they found a relative risk reduction of 14% in the more intensive blood pressure control group. Looking at heart attacks, the overall rate of heart attacks was about 2.1% over the study duration. And there was a relative reduction in the tight blood pressure control group of 13%. There was also a reduction in stroke. Again, the baseline rate of stroke was about 2.5%, and there was a relative reduction of 22%. So we're talking about absolute reductions on the order of you know, somewhere around 2% uh, absolute risk reductions in rates of things like M MI or stroke. And then you asked about serious adverse events. So Interestingly, only six of the studies reported serious adverse events. What they found was that the rate of adverse event was 1.2% in the intense group and 0.9% in the less intense group. So that's an absolute difference of about 0.3%, which uh, is a number needed to harm of 300 in terms of serious adverse events. So that's not necessarily you know just hypotension or whatnot, but serious adverse events. Okay, great. And then how does that align with sort of past research and uh, what happens pragmatically? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So what they did was they looked at the difference in blood pressure that they observed in this meta-analysis, which was seven millimeters of mercury between the intensive treatment group and the less intense treatment group. And then they looked at previous cohort studies and previous randomized trials and said, what was the benefit that would be expected in people who had a seven millimeter of mercury reduction in blood pressure? And then they found that the reductions in events of coronary heart disease and stroke were basically the same as what they saw in the meta-analysis. So their meta-analysis was consistent with what was previously known in the literature about blood pressure reduction. And uh, any major limitations uh, to be aware of for this meta-analysis? Yeah, the major limitation of this meta-analysis is the lack of individual participant data, which would have allowed a lot more reliable assessment of treatment effects in the different patient groups. Uh, and the other really important thing is that there were very few cause-specific events, meaning that if you look specifically at the number of myocardial infarctions or the number of strokes, those events were fairly rare, on happening sort of 1% to 2% roughly. And so they had to sort of combine all of the things into a composite outcome. And actually, one of the interesting things that these authors articulated is that a key issue and a key limitation of the existing literature in this topic is that relatively few trials have simultaneously achieved a large blood pressure separation between the intensive treatment group and the less intensive treatment group mm. and had enough events to actually have the power to detect a difference. Okay. So... What they're saying is, in fact, that's one of the major existing limitations of the literature. So that sort of nicely leads us into this new study where we can ask that question. Did they achieve a large difference between the groups in blood pressure? And did they have enough events for us to be able to make a comment about? 
the difference. How's that for a segue? Beautiful. Seamless. Okay. So why don't we summarize the, the findings of this meta-analysis? So this meta-analysis found that more intensive blood pressure lowering was associated with improved cardiovascular outcomes, specifically MI and stroke, and also some improvements in albuminuria, but there was no effect on heart failure, death, cardiovascular mortality, or end-stage renal disease. There was also a slight increase in serious adverse events that was observed. Importantly, these findings uh, were relatively consistent across the various studies in the meta-analysis and across the various subgroups of patients in this meta-analysis, including patients with diabetes. Okay, Mike, let's get to the main event. So I was the sort of amuse-bouche for today. Let's jump in. So tell me about the SPRINT trial. Perfect. So the one-liner for the SPRINT trial is that it was a large randomized controlled trial patients who did not have diabetes, and it found that intensive blood pressure control to systolic less than 120 was associated with a decrease of the composite endpoint, which included uh, MI, stroke, um, congestive heart failure, and death from CV events, compared to individuals who had a blood pressure titrated to 140 systolic. So what was the research question that was being asked here? Sure. So essentially it was, what is the benefit of targeting a systolic blood pressure to less than 120 systolic compared to targeting a blood pressure to less than 140 systolic? I love that they're just challenging dogma. Like, it's really great, right? Like, I think as a trainee, you hear 140 over 90, you just assume that's the, you know, the bee's knees, that's the way to do it. And it's nice that we, we're bringing real evidence to sort of just existing expert opinions. Completely agree. Okay, so tell me what they did. For sure. So um, the methodology, as mentioned, this is a randomized controlled trial, essentially it was unblinded and the investi the individuals who were assessing them at each visit knew whether or not they were getting the um, more strict control um, or the less strict control of 140 systolic. Um, this was a study that took place in the United States, 102 sites across the United States. Uh, it was not sponsored by a drug company, it was sponsored by the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And I think the important features are the inclusion-exclusion criteria. In a nutshell, the inclusion criteria were individuals over the age of 50 with a systolic blood pressure between 130 and 180 who had an increased risk of cardiovascular events. And there were different ways of defining that, such as one or more of subclinical cardiovascular disease other than stroke, chronic kidney disease, or Framingham risk of above 15%, or age over 75. And the important exclusion criteria, um, patients who had diabetes were excluded and patients who had a previous stroke were also excluded. So that's really interesting and I think really important. I'm glad you spent some time on it and we're going to come back to looping around to talk about sort of these patients and how and whether we can generalize these findings. So tell me what was their uh, uh, randomization and what was their intervention? Sure. So individuals were randomized uh, either to an intensive blood pressure control to a systolic less than 120 uh, or they're randomized to blood pressure of uh, less than 140 systolic. Uh, thereafter, they were assessed on a monthly basis um, where they would have their blood pressure monitored. And I should mention this was not an outpatient uh, overnight or ambulatory blood pressure monitor. It was blood pressure that was checked um, in the actual office itself. So three readings using the um, true blood pressure monitor uh, without a physician being in the room. So um, an automated blood pressure machine 
that cycled multiple times in the absence of the physician. Correct. And it took an average of the three readings to determine what their systolic was. Um, and essentially, as mentioned, they were assessed monthly and then thereafter um, every three months. Uh, and dose adjustments were made based on uh, what their current blood pressure was and what group they were randomized to. And the people in the intensive group could have had their medications adjusted monthly. That's correct. So there was certainly the possibility that people in the intensive arm were actually being monitored closer um, than patients who weren't in the intensive arm. Okay. And so what about uh, their outcomes? For sure. So the outcome itself was blinded. So people who were determining what the outcome was, they were not aware of whether or not they're randomized to the intensive arm or not. And it was a composite endpoint. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it included um, MI, so myocardial infarction, stroke, congestive heart failure, uh, or death from cardiovascular events. And importantly, there were secondary endpoints, which included death from any cause, and they had some pre-specified subgroups. Okay, so tell me what they found. So um, in terms of what they found between the two groups, I'll just take one second and talk about the table one data and uh, the number of patients who were eligible and then were randomized thereafter. So it's very impressive that about 15,000 patients were approached for potential eligibility and about 9,000 underwent randomization. Yeah, that's incredible. That's nearly two thirds and something that is quite impressive. Even if the number was 50%, I would be impressed. Sure. Um, what's important, uh, the next step is looking at the table one data and the Don Rettelmeyer approach, which asks sort of the three S's. So is the data symmetrical between the control arm um, and the intensive arm? Is there similarity between the patients enrolled in this study and the patients I would see in hospital? And is there something missing from the data? And so as is convention with most randomized control trial uh, papers, table one is all of our patients' baseline characteristics. So tell me about the two groups of patients. Sure. So about uh, 4,500 individuals in each group. The average age was uh, 68 and 20, about a quarter of the patients were over the age of 75. Uh, one-third of the patients had chronic kidney disease, and one-fifth of the patients had some form of cardiovascular disease. A reminder, uh, none of the patients had diabetes. That was an exclusion criteria. About one-third of the patients were female. Those are some of the pertinents, and of course, for renal function, converting into the Canadian units, the average serum creatinine at presentation was um, uh, a creatinine of 80. What's that? Micromoles per liter? <laughs> I don't know. Don't ask me about units. Perfect. Um, that's some of the pertinent um, table one data. Okay, perfect. Why don't you tell me about the outcomes of the of the study? Sounds good. So to answer the one question you had based on that meta-analysis, like what actual blood pressure did they achieve? So at one year in the intensive arm, they achieved a blood pressure on average of 121 systolic and for the control arm, 136 systolic. And this persisted at three years of follow-up. So that's important to keep in mind. It translated to if you're in the intensive arm, you're on 2.8 medications. If you're in the control arm, you're on 1.8 medications. So Mike, how long was the follow-up? So the follow-up uh, median follow-up was about 3.2 years, which is very important to mention because the planned follow-up, and it will be longer, but this is a study that was actually ended early, not because of harm, but because of benefit. Okay, and so uh, tell me what they found in terms of clinical outcomes between the groups. Sure. So the primary outcome, which was that composite endpoint which I uh, referred to, um, so that occurred at a rate of 1.6% per year in the intensive arm and 2.1% in the standard arm. 
This translates to a 25% relative risk reduction in the primary outcome and an absolute risk reduction of about 0.5%. Uh, and this separation was apparent at one year out. Uh, and the differences were consistent across uh, various components of the primary as well as the secondary outcomes. For example, um, there was a lower risk of congestive heart failure, death from cardiovascular disease, and death from any cause. So pretty impressive amongst individuals in the intensive arm. And it's hard to understand what these relative risk reductions or absolute risk reductions actually mean. So another way of saying this is about the number needed to treat. So for example, for the primary outcome, the number needed to treat is 61, which is pretty impressive. The number needed uh, to treat to prevent all-cause death is 90, and the number needed to treat to prevent um, death from cardiovascular causes is 172. Okay, so you're telling me all about the benefits. What about the harms? Yeah, the reported data on the serious adverse events, these typically could have been life-threatening events, events that brought individuals into hospital, or events as um, determined by the investigator to be a serious adverse event. When they tried to determine what was attributable to the intensive arm, there was certainly an increased risk of harm. So to the order of about 5% um, for individuals in the intensive arm and 2.5% in the control arm. And that was mainly reflected in um, syncope uh, as well as hypotension and severe hypotension was included in that. So we talked about the number needed to treat, the number needed to harm. So for every 100 people um, that get treated to achieve the lower blood pressure, one more individual would experience a life-threatening low blood pressure um, or syncope uh, and two more would have experienced a severe kidney problem. Okay, so certainly not a harmless intervention. Agreed. One of the things we haven't talked about is what medications were used to lower the blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me something about that? For sure. So in terms of the medications that were used, um, typically, so this was encouraged but not mandated, uh, these included um, diuretics, including thiazide diuretics and loop diuretics, as well as beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Unsurprisingly, um, a lot of these individuals weren't on ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptive blockers, probably related to the fact that they didn't have other indications for being on them. Okay, Mike, I kind of want to dive into a couple of key conversation points about this trial. First, I want to ask you, do we believe this result? Yeah, so I do believe the results from this study. This is a, a large, uh, well-conducted, uh, randomized study um, with a fairly impressive duration follow-up and more to come. And it wasn't as if this was a one-off uh, decreased risk of MI and not other endpoints. It was decreased in the primary endpoint, the secondary endpoint. So I am fairly convinced that this is a real result. But a very important limitation is that for the most part, this was an unblinded study, which obviously introduces uh, risk of bias. Yeah, when we think about bias and, and uh, randomized trials, I think the main thing that we should think about, and this is care of teaching from uh, Dr. Ahmed Bayoumi, um, one of our clinical epidemiologists here, is that you really want to look at the effect size. And if there's a large effect size, then you can say, okay, maybe bias played a little bit into the effect size, but it's unlikely to account for all of the effect size. And I think, you know, here we're seeing a very large effect size. We're seeing, you know, cardiovascular mortality benefit on the order of a number needed to treat of, was it 90, you said? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a pretty impressive effect size, and that suggests that, therefore, bias is unlikely to have played a big role. And, and finally, the question of this trial was stopped early. Does that bother us? 
Yeah, so, I mean, certainly, especially in the oncologic literature, there's more data about um, issues when trials are ended early and what actually happens thereafter. Um, of course, it would be unethical to a continuous study that showed a clear benefit. Um, and this was determined by a data safety monitoring board um, unrelated to the actual individuals who are uh, involved in the study directly. So it's something to be concerned to think more about, but I don't think it's something that um, um, dissuades me. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, this was a very large trial, uh, and there was a reasonable number of events, about 500 uh, cardiovascular events. You know, this was a, a large and, and, and well-conducted trial, so it seems unlikely that extending the trial for longer would substantially have changed the result. Agreed. Okay, so this is now the key question. Which patients does this apply to? Yeah, so that is a great question. Um, the majority of patients that I look after are inpatients who are in the hospital who typically have diabetes and many other comorbidities, and they probably wouldn't have entered into this study. So I think the patients that it really applies to probably are individuals who are seeing their um, general practitioner um, outpatients who have good access to follow-up and can be followed um, very closely, uh, those are probably the individuals where this can be considered and discussed, but certainly it won't apply to the majority of patients who are uh, hi hypertensive. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, sus I think the biggest problem with the media coverage of this trial was that it just spoke about intensive blood pressure lowering and changing the target for blood pressure. And sometimes it missed this point that we are talking about a very specific set of people who are at elevated cardiovascular risk, but who do not have diabetes or a previous previous stroke. I completely agree. And so a useful number um, that I came across is that about one in 12 Canadians who have um, high blood pressure would actually have been included in this study. So it's an important rule of thumb for um, general practitioners or merge docs as well as internists uh, when they're reading the results of these studies, realizing that the majority of the patients who you're treating for high blood pressure never actually would have been um, included in this study. So it's important to pause and remember that. Okay, great. Totally agree. So Mike, why don't you wrap up and summarize and say, what is your key takeaway point from this study? So the major takeaway point from this study is that some individuals, especially those who do not have diabetes, um, may benefit from a blood pressure uh, target of less than 120 systolic, but these individuals need to be very carefully selected and monitored very closely after initiation of the antihypertensives. And I personally have to say, I like that this might represent a movement towards a more risk-associated uh, targets for blood pressure, kind of like how we do for lipids, seems like it's you know about time we move in that direction recognizing that risk plays a big role and that we you know maybe are more intensive with certain populations and less intensive with other instead of blanket targets for everyone for sure i think this allows us some tailoring when we're treating patients with uh hypertension excellent okay uh thanks so much for that great discussion let's move to our good stuff segment so who goes first for the uh, good stuff? Who's, As always, the better? guest of honor, whose stuff is gooder? Yeah. As always, the guest of honor gets to go first. So Mike, tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. Perfect. Uh, study out of JAMA just this past month. I'm a huge fan of IV iron, especially when patients are in hospital because they don't have to pay a penny for it. 
there's the obvious concern about what about the risk of anaphylaxis with IV iron. Um, certainly we saw that from older formulations. This study was great, very pragmatic, and showed us that the risk of anaphylaxis with IV iron is exquisitely low, probably less than 0.1%. Um, and if you had to pick one, um, IV sucrose uh, is suggestive of having the lowest risk. Perfect. Thanks so much, Mike. My good stuff segment. We'll let the we'll let our readers decide what's good or maybe they can tweet at Freilich Mike and okay. tell him whether they thought his good stuff was, was a good, good enough. Plug. I like that plug. <laughs> Throw it in there. <laughs> All right. So uh, my good stuff seg- uh, recommendation is an editorial that was in the New England Journal of Medicine written by Lisa Rosenbaum called Transitional Chaos or Enduring Harm: The Electronic Health Record and the Disruption of Medicine. And I have to give a shout out to one of our Uh, staff physicians here at St. Michael's, Dr. Jim Kitchens, for sending this my way. Lisa Rosenbaum talks about a nuanced analysis of the electronic health record and makes the comment that we all experience some aggravation, frustration, difficulty when dealing with our electronic health records as clinicians and raises the real question of whether this is just growing pains or whether there is real harm and problems with electronic health records that we must not ignore. And she highlights three points. First, that we tend to be very aspirational about our technology, but these aspirational narratives that electronic health records are cost-saving, quality-promoting, etc., etc., whereas the real evidence suggests that cost-saving projections are not accurate and uh, data and quality are really mixed. So that's the first point she says, and she says that these aspirational narratives can make us complacent and not critical of, of you know, where things are. The second argument that she makes is that if we let the market shape usability, that assumes that clinicians are the target users, but in fact, electronic health records were designed to optimize billing, not workflow or patient communication, and that this leads to real problems. And finally, the third problem, which is that many clinicians know what they want, but have not been asked or engaged in the process of developing electronic health records. So uh, I think it's a really great article and one to read. And Mike, as someone who has developed an app, you can talk a little bit about usability. How's that for another plug? Oh, this is real. I'm getting lots of plugs. It's great. Yeah, um, I think the first statement, I think mine is good or more good than yours. That was <laughs> that was good. I, li- I like that. I'll have to read that one closer. Um, so the app that I developed is called Target Antibiogram and has access to antibiogram data at St. Mike's, uh, as well as some treatment algorithms. It's um, a lot of work to develop apps. I wouldn't be doing it Hard to develop usability? Yes, yes, that's certainly true. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks so much, Mike. It was awesome to talk to you and hope we can do it again soon. That was great. Amol, can I just add one thing? Please. I'm embarrassed to say that I said IV sucrose, (laughs) IV iron sucrose. (laughs) All right. This isn't just sugar. We'll throw it in there. Very few anaphylactic reactions to (laughs) IV sucrose, Mike. But thanks, Amol. I I definitely enjoyed this. It was fun. Awesome. Okay, thank you and talk to you soon. Cool. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.